Father, we pray now that as we come to your word, that you would open our eyes so that we can see what you are saying here and what it means for us in our lives today. We pray that we would see Jesus' authority more clearly and the implications for us here and now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 14, page 972. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. Just imagine for a moment that these events were taking place today. What would happen when word got out? We live in an age of antibiotics and paracetamol and... I guess fever in some ways doesn't sound like that big a deal to us, although perhaps it should. But historians say uh, infectious disease was the single greatest killer in the ancient world. Epidemics could easily kill over half of a populated area or city. Um, Today, at least until the next major flu pandemic or superbug or one of those dreadful apocalyptic things comes along, it's things like cancer that caused the same kind of fear for human beings. And imagine a man who can heal the sick just like that, instantaneously. Imagine what would happen when word got out, just as it does here in verse 16. And they bring many who are demon-possessed to him. Think of the cues that would build up. Suppose it was here in this building. You know, traffic on a Sunday can get bad enough on Downshire Hill. There's no passing place because there's several parks to go to the heath. And it only takes a few cars for major road rage incidents and people screaming and shouting at each other. Um, And multiply that by a thousand, a hundred thousand times onto all the nearby streets. Hampstead High Street, Roslyn Hill, Fitzjohns, the A1, the M1. Every major route in and out of London blocked because everybody's trying to get here. All the pavements crowded, spilling onto the road. The crowd spilling onto the road. That's how it would be, wouldn't it? You know, from time to time, I find myself with a serious case of man flu. And the other gentlemen here will sympathise with this horrifying illness. And you know how it goes? Three days getting ill. You know, the kind of tickly throats, the increasingly runny nose, a bit of a headache. Three days being ill, sitting in a chair, feeling sorry for yourself, dosed up on paracetamol. And then three days getting better, gradual improvement, less sniffing, clearer head. And if that's how it is for deadly man flu, how much more for what some people who don't understand call real illness, when when you're recovering from something really serious, it's never instantaneous, is it? It's weeks and weeks and weeks of recuperation and recovery. It's never straight away. And yet, like the storm that we'll see next time, 
when Jesus says, quiet, be still, and instead of the storm sort of gradually calming down over a period of time, no, boom, just like that. It's fixed, it's done. It's all still. So it is here. He touched her hand and the fever left her and straight away she's well, she's up. And she begins to wait on him and serve him. So the extraordinary thing that would be grabbing uh, Peter as he watches this amazing miracle and the thing that should be grabbing us is the authority of Jesus that we see again in these verses. In the face of illness today, real illness, not man flu, but real illness, we need to know there is one who has all authority over illness and everything that is opposed to God. There's a time coming when there will be no more sickness, sorrow or pain because the king with all authority has come. And remember, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that these chapters climax in Jesus giving his, his followers authority to go out and proclaim him. The end of chapter 9, beginning of chapter 10. That's where this is heading. We establish that Jesus has all authority and then his followers are sent out with that authority to proclaim the king who has all authority. And so we need to, to know for ourselves what kind of authority Jesus has so we will then have confidence when we are speaking to our friends at, at, at work, at school, with our neighbours on our street, on our block, with our families, with people that we meet uh, just randomly in the street and get talking to, or whatever it is, we need to have the confidence that this is the king who has come and his kingdom is open to anyone who will trust in him and follow him. So that is what we see first of all in these verses. From verses 14 to 17, that first paragraph, we see, as you can see on the sheet, Jesus is the Son of Man and suffering servant. Follow him. Jesus is the Son of Man and suffering servant. Follow him. For the first time in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus refers to himself in verse 20, a little bit further down, he calls himself the Son of Man. And that's an appropriate way of summing up the authority that we see in these verses, 17 to 20. The Son of Man is the figure in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, you can see this. There, this Son of Man is given all authority by God. And it's a kind of authority that is over all people, all places, for all of time. So it's just, the Son of Man is, is a title for God's king of the universe. There is no one in the rest of history, in the rest of the world, no other person who has this kind of authority overall. But with all that in mind, then I think verse 17 comes as a bit of a surprise. How does verse 17 fit with all that we've seen about Jesus so far? He's the boss, he has all authority, and so this was to fulfil what Isaiah said. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now we heard that read in the first reading from Isaiah 53 and one of the principles for understanding how New Testament writers use the Old Testament is to realise that the New Testament writers are always thinking of the whole context of the verse that they quote. They're not in the business of ripping verses out of context. And so this verse about the uh, taking up our infirmities and carrying our diseases is part of a description, not of a conquering, all-powerful king with, with all authority, but apparently the very opposite. 
a suffering servant who is despised by all, who is crushed and beaten. And Isaiah then spells out that this would happen for us. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. But we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We read all of that in Isaiah 53 and it's striking. He was pierced. It's written 800 years before Jesus was born in a kind of prophetic past tense, speaking forwards about Jesus. So what's Matthew doing by quoting this then? He's not just saying, well, well, Jesus healed like the Old Testament said he would. He's saying Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of a suffering servant just as much as he is fulfilling the prophecy of an authoritative ruling son of man. And the healings are therefore a sign of his own sufferings. Because on the cross, he will take all that is broken about the world on his own shoulders. And of course, when he's healing, he is, he's putting right a little bit of that brokenness. But on the cross, everything, and including the root cause of all the brokenness, all the sin in the world, will be taken by him on his shoulders. All the judgment that is deserved by us from God will all go on him. So he's fulfilling that too, which then in turn is the grounds for God giving him all authority. That's the pattern. We heard it in our opening verse, that quote from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself even though he was God. And then Paul goes on in those verses in, in that chapter to say that therefore God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. See, the basis on which Jesus is given this universal authority that we see in his life and ministry is his willingness to give up what was rightly his. He's a suffering servant who is raised to rule. And it's really important to grasp this because it sets Jesus apart from every other world leader, every other religious figure in history. So take take the prophet Muhammad from Islam, for example. And you might say, well, Muhammad is a leader who has authority. He was a mighty warrior. There's a list online that with, with evidence for 43 individual people, and you can, you can see their names, they're listed, and they were all killed at the command of Muhammad for reasons such as opposing and mocking Muhammad with poetry or satirical songs. Or, or for becoming apostates and leaving Islam. See, Muhammad is a man with authority, isn't he? He only had to speak. It's not that he killed these people himself necessarily, but he, he was the guy in charge and he gave the command. He just spoke a word and his command was carried out. And people died. But you see, Jesus' authority is a completely different kind. It's an authority established through suffering service. So Peter then uh, writes, the same Peter that saw him do this here, writes in his first letter, when they hurled their insults at him, 
he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. It's a total opposite, isn't it? And yet, by doing that, he established himself as the ruler, not just of some tribes in the Middle East or whatever, but of the entire universe. So follow him. That's the implication throughout these verses. Follow him, trust him. But what does that response look like? Again, the cross that establishes Jesus' authority also sets the tone for the right response to him. And we see two responses here. First, one who is too quick, and then one who is too slow. So let's see that. From verses 18 to 20. Don't be too quick. Don't be too quick. So verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And at face value, what follows are responses about following Jesus there and then. He's going across the lake. Are they going to follow him? But quickly, it becomes a picture of the whole of life. As the first guy, the teacher of the law, says to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, not just across the lake, anywhere. And Jesus could say, I I'm not just a teacher, I'm the promised son of man with all authority. And he, he, he could say that rightly, couldn't he? A bit like, um, it's a bit like calling the queen, going up to the queen and saying, your royal highness. And you think, well, that's a you know, royal highness, that's a, that's a privileged title, isn't it? But it's not actually the right title for the queen, is it? It's the title for a prince or a princess. So what do you say if you say to the if you say to your queen, your royal highness, you are actually undervaluing who she is. You should be saying your majesty. And it's the same here as, as this man comes to Jesus and calls him teacher. Well, it's true that he's a teacher, but it's so much less than who he really is. And he could respond and say, no, you've got it wrong. I'm the son of man. You better worship me. But he doesn't. He talks about being the son of man, but he implies that the way that you can spot that he's the son of man with all authority is in his suffering, his humility, his lack of status and position in society. So he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you see again, he's pointing to the fact that his authority is won through suffering, ultimately at the cross. And so the implication is his followers must also go via suffering, go via the cross as they travel after him. So the teacher of the law has seen that there are blessings to be had in following Jesus. He's seen the healings and he's thought, huh, you know, this guy's worth following. I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. I'm after him. But Jesus is saying, don't be too quick. Have you understood the cost of following me? It's not going to be an easy life. See, we all have idols. We all have things that we find really hard to let go of and give up in order to follow Jesus. And one of those idols for many is simply comfort. You know, I like the positives of what Jesus offers. I want to know that there's hope in the face of death, life beyond the grave. I want to know forgiveness for my sins. I want to know real intimate love with my creator, but I'm attracted to all those things actually because the bottom line for me is really comfort and pleasure. And the way you can see that now is that the decisions I make now are driven largely by comfort. I just want to be comfortable. 
I want my family to be comfortable. When I think of the future, the word that needs to sum it all up is comfortable. And Jesus is saying to us, as much as he was saying to this teacher of the law, have you understood the shape of the Christian life? It's not actually one of comfort and pleasure and health and wealth. A son of man, the one with all authority who could have anything he wanted, he had no to lay his head. He suffered and served. C.S. Lewis put it memorably like this. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. We don't need to go looking for suffering and persecution or famine or poverty or illness. But the thing is, we can be sure that if we follow Jesus, some or all of those things will find us anyway. And if we've not yet committed to following Jesus, have you understood that? That there is a cost to following Jesus, which means being ready to lose the things that we hold dear if necessary. Don't be too quick. You need to count the cost and understand what you're committing yourself to. And yet, finally, we need to hear also, don't be too slow. Verses 21 and 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Isn't that a shocking thing for Jesus to say? It's helpful, I think, to understand a little of the Jewish cultural context. Because I think we read this and it reads to us as if the man's father has just died and Jesus is refusing to give him a day off for the funeral. And, you know, if, if that happened in, a, in sort of a, 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 an employment situation today or something, we'd think it was outrageous, wouldn't we? Can't go to your own father's funeral. What does Jesus think he's playing at? But the fact is, a Jewish man whose father had just died wouldn't actually be there asking for permission. He'd already be at home. He'd be making arrangements for the burial before, you know, before he'd even started. This conversation wouldn't be happening. And more than that, we know from other things that Jesus says that his view of families is complex. It's, it's nuanced. He, he expects there to be conflict in families when one person believes and another doesn't. He makes it clear in the end that he is more important even than family, which in many cultures is a, is a deep challenge. But even given that, he also thinks honouring your father and mother is very important. It's the fifth commandment, isn't it, in, in the Ten Commandments that Moses gave to Israel? And, and, and he upholds that and says it's, it's true. And he heavily criticises the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15 for finding religious reasons not to honour their parents. He says, you hypocrites. So it's not that Jesus just is sort of saying, forget all that now and, and, and follow me, but there is something deeper going on. Just consider this. If the man's father is actually still alive when he says this, because if he wasn't still alive, he wouldn't be there having the conversation, so assume he's still alive, what then does he mean by saying this to Jesus? Well, he would mean, presumably, Lord... Just let me wait a few years before I commit to following you. When my father has died, well, then I'll come. 
and, and just dig even further a little bit more. Why, why would he say that? Why, what would he lose by leaving his father before his death? Well, quite possibly, and again, this is slightly just inferring what, what, what's going on here, but quite possibly he's got his inheritance in mind. You know, I can't risk jeopardising the relationship with my father in these final years, he thinks. I've got too much to lose. And for many, it won't won't necessarily be that particular issue, but it'll be something like that where we think, no, 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 I've got this particular thing going on in my life and surely Jesus can't mean that I need to give that up. But Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. What does he mean? He means let the spiritually dead concern themselves with things like that because this world is passing away. So let those who are... Um, in that world and who don't know me, let, let, let them worry about those things. But given a choice between receiving your inheritance and following me, he's saying, which are you going to take? Now, we don't know which way the disciple went. What would you have chosen? Which do you choose right now, today? Because this is about our bottom line, what we're living for, our hopes and dreams. In these chapters we see again and again that Jesus is the one with all authority. And the implication of that is that he's not just another ingredient in the big recipe for life that we're, you know, we're trying to cook. As if this is kind of big mixing bowl. And we chuck in work and family and sport and exercise and a hobby or two and time with friends and reading and you know, whatever else kind of gets us excited and gets us out of bed and... Oh yeah, and then stick Jesus in there as well for good measure. You know, he helps to add a certain spice to the overall flavour. You know, just a little something. And then the problem is he doesn't fit like that when you try and sort of add him in at the end. With Jesus, it's a, a question of starting a brand new recipe that features him as the main ingredient. And until we realise that, we'll always put off following him for another time because we've got this big mixing bowl and we're really sort of struggling to fit everything in. What will it take to hear that call to follow him and do that right away, wholeheartedly and unreservedly? You might say that if the teacher of the law in the previous couple of verses had seen the blessings but not the cost, which made him too quick... This disciple saw the cost, but not the blessings, which made him too slow. Do you see? And we won't respond rightly until we understand that actually, when we follow Jesus, the blessings are in the cost. They're actually one and the same thing. How how can that be possible? Well, actually, that's how it was for Jesus. You see, at the cross... He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and therefore God exalted him. In John's Gospel, Jesus' hour of glory keeps being referred to through the whole Gospel, but it becomes clear at the end that his hour of glory is at the cross. And millions of Christians have found the same to be true since. One was uh, David Livingstone who was born in 1813. He gave his life to serve Christ in the exploration of Africa. He's often seen as an explorer, you know, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, and all that, but he was clear that his motives 
were in his, uh, in the words that he said, his motives were to open up Africa or perish. And in 1857, he addressed students at Cambridge University on the topic of leaving the benefits of England behind. And he said this. He said, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People speak of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word sacrifice in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life. They may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. And he concludes, I never made a sacrifice. Well, we can only say that and believe that for ourselves if we believe that Jesus has already suffered and died and risen as both suffering servant and glorious son of man. That the path that he has trodden has secured our future glory for us. So now all that's left is to follow him wherever he takes us. Now there may be some here who are being too quick to grasp the blessings Jesus offers without understanding or embracing that cost. It doesn't necessarily mean dropping everything and and quitting your job and going off and being a missionary or something. I, I could do. But it could also mean a new attitude to work and money and comfort that says, I don't know where we're going, Jesus, but you come first, even if that means losing some or all of the things that I value the most along the way, or even if it means never gaining the things that I long for along the way. Have you named those things before God? Either the things that you have that you value and you think, oh, I, I don't think I could give that up, or, or, or the things that you, you long for and think, I, I'm struggling to live without them. If you named those things before God, maybe just privately in prayer or with those closest to you, and, and just said to God, Lord, you come first. Don't be too quick. But for, for others, we may be being too slow. We may see the cost of following him and think, well, you know, that, that, that's not for me. Maybe one day when I've got less to lose, but, you know, for now I'm happy to wait. Jesus says, don't be too slow. The kingdom of this world, with all its wealth and power and success and comfort, it's going to carry on for a while yet, but it's a kingdom of the dead. The spiritually dead to God. 
when the cat brings a, a dead mouse to the back door. It's my job to uh, get rid of said mouse in, in, uh, in our house. And what I do is I often ignore it and sort of hope that it will go away of its own accord. But the thing is, it never does. It always remains in precisely the same place and position that it was deposited. Completely dead. Because that's what death is. And Jesus is saying, you can rise to the top of your career, but without Jesus, you will still be dead to God. You can get the house of your dreams. You can get the relationship that you long for. You can pass the exams that you are longing to achieve highly in. But without Jesus, you will still be dead. Let the dead deal with the affairs of this world. This world is passing away. Don't be too slow to say... In my life, Jesus comes first. He's the Son of Man, he's the suffering servant. So follow him now, today. Let's pray. Father, would you continue to work your word in us, in our hearts, as we've heard this challenge. May we each individually see what it means for us. Would we follow Jesus, not too quickly so that we've missed the realistic cost of following him. But not too slowly, where we put it off because we're not willing to give up and pay that cost. We thank you that you have first and foremost paid the price for us through Jesus' death on the cross. The price has been paid. We are free now to follow you and know the joy of being yours forever. So may we come to you here and now, empty-handed, and follow you. Amen.